When I first heard that Netflix was producing a TV series on The Witcher, I was highly skeptical, as I'm sure many of you were as well. The entertainment industry's success rate on these gaming-inspired series is quite low, so what would make this time around any different? For me, the first truly hopeful sign for the series was when they announced that Henry Cavill was going to be playing Geralt of Rivia on the show. To see an A-list actor helm a franchise that most anticipated and considered to be a major risk was unexpected for many. In the months that came after, Henry gave many interviews wherein he explained and expressed his passion for the subject matter, the fact that he was obsessed with the books and with the games. Evidently, when Cavill heard that this series was casting, he ordered his agent and his manager to get him an audition for this at any cost. And it's clear, this for Cavill was not a cash grab at all. If it was, it was a terrible attempt, because this is actually considered to be a paycheck that's significantly beneath what Henry could normally charge for his time. According to all of the reports that I found, Henry Cavill can expect to charge anywhere from 20 to $25 million to work on a major AAA production in the film space. For TV, it's a little unclear because he hasn't done a lot on TV recently at least, but as far as we can tell, this is a guy that can charge tens of millions of dollars for a few months of his time, and the Witcher series required a few months of his time. According to the latest reports, Henry took in roughly $400,000 per episode of The Witcher on Netflix, which is a crap ton of money, but is no doubt less than he would normally receive had he agreed to do another film during that span of time instead. So given that information, this would imply that Cavill's participation was that of passion and of a love for the subject matter and not just a purely business-driven or pragmatic decision. Now that alone, of course, does not a great production make. I mean, look at Battlefield Earth. Do you think John Travolta was passionate about portraying Scientology in the best way possible? Probably didn't turn out that well, though. But I have to tell you, the Witcher Netflix series actually turned out pretty good. And I am very happy to report that in addition to being quite surprised and semi flabbergasted at the thought. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a perfect series by any measure or metric. There are lots of problems and things that I hope to see remedied in season two. But all told, I think this series does a lot more correctly than it does incorrectly. And I think it sets a fantastic foundation for what's to come. So in this video, we're going to be breaking down some of the things that I liked, some of the things I didn't, what could be done better, what they did very, very well, and what we want to see coming forward in season two. Needless to say, we're going to be spoiling pretty much everything. So if you haven't read the books, played the games, or seen the series, you can put this off, add it to your favorites, watch it later. It will still be here. I recommend you go in fresh. And of course, a huge thanks to all of the patrons who support me over on Patreon. This video would not have been made or even been a thought if it weren't for you guys. So thank you. Funny story, I've had to re-record this episode, this critique, three separate times because YouTube's copyright system is an absolute dream come true. And who knows, maybe this will never see the light of day and I'm just talking into the ether in a room all by myself, but hopefully this ends up being uploaded and you're watching it right now laughing at my uncertainty. 
I will be showing lots of clips from the show, from the eight episodes that we have behind me. Don't worry, I'm not going to be uh, attempting to spoil anything in detail, but it will be there. If you wanna see more critiques like this on TV shows or films, let me know in the comment section below and head over to Patreon to support me. Literally, if only 5% of the people that watch this video pitched in just a single dollar, then I'd be able to make critiques like this for all sorts of different videos. I'd be able to hire a video editor to help me produce these and edit them together, which is by far the most time consuming portion of it it would open up a whole new world of possibilities. So really, if you would even just consider throwing a single buck into that pot, we could make some pretty amazing things happen. Not to mention that if you pitch in, depending on which tier you join at, you can find yourself being a sponsoring patron of this channel. So you can get a vocal shout out, such as Zachary Johnson and Mike Holland, two fantastic supporters who are pitching in a fair chunk of change and are supporting this channel in a way that very few others do. So special thank you to you two. But with all of the e-begging complete, let's get into it. Let's talk about The Witcher on Netflix. my estimation, the first clear distinction that must be drawn is how we're talking about and looking at the Witcher series on Netflix, because you can either look at it as a fan of the books, as a fan of the games, first and foremost, or as somebody coming in completely fresh with no expectations either which way. I think the latter group is probably the largest majority group of people who watched The Witcher on Netflix. A lot of people who had been fans of Game of Thrones and other series like that were looking for a new trend to hop onto, a new show to sink their teeth into, especially after the disappointing end to Game of Thrones. And no doubt, there's a lot of stuff in the Witcher series that definitely tries to pull in some Game of Thrones fans. Show me them boobies. I think they are fundamentally different series and I think that's probably a good thing. But the most important thing to understand if you're coming from the games primarily is that this is a series that was inspired by the books. This is based on the novels, many of the stories and tales, sequences, and even dialogue that you'll see in the show are taken directly from the books. And don't get me wrong, there are some fantastic moments where they give a heavy nod to the games, such as this sequence where Geralt has just fought a monster. He's quite dirty, quite filthy, and he's with Yaskir or Dandelion, and they decide to take a bath so that Geralt can get all cleaned up and it's the same style of bathtub that was in the opening sequence of The Witcher 3 which of course turned into a massive meme everybody knows what this is and I thought it was a, a, a tasteful nod to the subject matter to the games uh, that we all love so much and in preparation for this video I actually reread several of the books it's been ages so it was nice to get a refresher I had them already on my little remarkable tablet by the way if you want a Kindle that's basically an iPad all in one check it out remarkable they're great and I was actually very surprised at how accurate the show ended up being with regards to the books everything from character descriptions to Cavill's performance to the description of towns and cities character motivations and everything. It's all reflected in the books and it's all brought forward to the show. It's very well done and I'm glad to see that they're so respectful of the subject matter. So while I am a fan of the games first and foremost and the books secondly, 
I actually found myself able to follow along the episode structure fairly easily because as I'm sure you've heard by now, the Netflix series takes multiple timelines, interweaves them together, has several of them staggered back and then others start closer to the present. But by the end of the season, everybody's caught up to the current timeline. It's confusing for the first two, three episodes and some would argue needlessly confusing, but all told, I think it makes the series more interesting. It allows us to see more people than just Geralt or more people than just Yennefer for the first season as they explain everybody's backstories. I think it's a necessary evil, but I think it could have been done better because people I've spoken to who had no experience with The Witcher at all coming into the series fresh found it quite disorienting, had no idea we were dealing with different timelines until later episodes where they straight up tell you that it's been decades since the last time you saw them effectively. And I really, really love that instead I've gotten to spend the last three decades cleaning up stupid political messes. My guess is these kind of ham-fisted exposition moments were purely done because they were screen testing the episodes and people were saying, eh, I don't know if it's clear enough that we've jumped forward in time. So they said, okay, well, I guess we'll go back. We'll cut in this dialogue and it'll be fine. We'll explain it away as just kind of a ham-fisted expositing moment. But I think they've learned their lesson, especially after all of the feedback. And I would be shocked if they have another confusing timeline set up in season two. But the main thing I want to bear in mind as we discuss the first episode of the series and then also a lot of the characters and their motivations, how they work, I want us to keep in mind the question of why. This might seem needlessly simplistic, but when you're dealing with an adaptation of anything, whether it's a book, a movie, a game, whatever, you have to bear in mind that the producers, the creators are making active decisions to include or exclude certain things. And whenever something is different from the subject matter, that's an active decision. That's something that the creators decided to do in contrast with what was previously established. So you have to ask yourself, why did they choose to do that? And you have to debate whether or not that's a good decision. This will be very important when we discuss Triss in just a little bit. But first, let's discuss the characters. My personal favorite is Geralt of Rivia. Henry Cavill does a fantastic job, and you can really see how passionate he is about the subject matter in every single performance throughout the series that we've seen so far. It really is impressive. You can tell he cares. One of the most impressive things to me was actually the voice, because Geralt of Rivia's voice is not an easy thing to do or emulate, especially as it's become so ubiquitous in popular culture. Everybody knows what Geralt sounds like, and they expect him to sound that same way, so a different interpretation doesn't really do it justice. So the fact that Henry was able to come in and do such a fantastic job of replicating what's already been established while giving his own personal flair, I, I find it super impressive. I think he's fantastic. <clears throat> and in what comes as a surprise to absolutely no one, he has the physicality to match that of a witcher. I mean, as you're seeing in the clip behind me, his physicality, the way he's able to move, fight, it is reflective in every single project that he does. They always seem to have him do any sort of fight sequence or choreography himself. And there's a reason for it. He's very good at it. He's able to sell it. He knows what he's doing. And I think he does a fantastic job as Geralt of Rivia swinging swords around, decapitating people. It's 
fantastic. Another fan favorite would of course be Yaskir or Dandelion as he's known in the games and in a lot of English translations of the books coming over from the original Polish. He's played by a guy named Joey Beatty. He does a fantastic job and it's not easy, believe it or not, to be the sidekick to Geralt of Rivia. You have to keep up with Henry's fantastic immersive style of performing and you also have to bring your own energy so that you're contributing to it. It's not easy to do but the sequences with Geralt and Yaskir or Dandelion are fantastic. They play off of each other so, so well. And honestly, there are several laugh out loud moments in the first season. I think they play super well. I can't wait to see what they get into in the next season. What happened? Well, I was having a rather lovely dream, which then turned into a nightmare. There were naked women in both parts. The first one was loving, tender, very generous. The second, significantly more terrifying. But arguably, the co-star of the entire series up to this point would have to be Yennefer. She takes the front stage position in several episodes, especially in the first half of the season. And it's something I didn't really expect when I found out they were making a Witcher series on Netflix. I expected them to focus entirely on Geralt and Dandelion, to walk them through through all of these different quests and missions, things that they were doing for other rich benefactors as war was breaking out in the region. I expected it to just be much more action-packed, but as they leaned more into the sort of Game of Thrones-inspired type of structuring, they leaned a lot more into the slower, more methodical character development, which generally works quite well, although many of Yennefer's plot points do still feel extremely rushed. The most notable character arc for Yennefer in the first season is that of her wanting to go from somebody who had a hunch, who was uh, effectively a hunchback, very deformed, ugly, nobody gave her the time of day, becoming powerful and wanting to become beautiful so that everybody would respect her at that point. She achieves that mission after the first few episodes. She has the power she has the look, she's gotten what she wants. And then effectively, in the span of a single episode, she goes a complete 180 and decides that she wants to forego this power and responsibility and instead wants to be able to bear a child, which is the one thing you have to give up when you decide to go through that transformation, going from ugly to beautiful as part of the ritual of becoming a witch. Now, in the showrunner's defense, this actually happens over the course of years and years and years, decades and decades. It's not actually an overnight thing, but effectively for the audience, we find out about it. One episode, she's totally fine. She got her power. She's happy where she's at. Next episode, years and years have passed. She's been working with wealthy benefactors and noblemen for a while. She kind of hates it. She's sick and tired of it, and she wants something else. But effectively for the audience, it is that immediate switch, even though in the story, it's taken place over years and years and years. So I understand both sides of the argument. I can see how it could be defensible, but I think it's still a shortcoming if it's something people notice, because at the end of the day, perception's more important than reality. And I think it's less excusable, especially because it would have been a quite easy thing to fix for the showrunners. Only a couple of scenes would have been needed to really show her going back on this desire for power and uh, status and deciding instead that she wants to bear a child. She still wants the power, so I understand that they don't want to make that too clear. She's not willing to completely give up her magical abilities for the sake of having a child, as is shown in several scenes, but she still wants a child and she's trying to find ways to work around it. It's a difficult and delicate 
thing to approach as a writer. I understand that, but I think it could have been done better. And there's this really fascinating scene, probably one of my favorite of Yennefer's throughout the entire first season, where she's sitting on a beach and she's delivering a monologue. And it's actually quite interesting. She's explaining how messed up the world is, how broken it is, and yet they still have to try to do their best and survive in it in the face of all this evil and darkness. And it contrasts really nicely with the setting, with the sun setting, it's bright, the colors are warm. And then it cuts to a baby that's died and it's a baby that we saw a noblewoman with previously in the episode and you realize the implication of Yennefer's dialogue is much more engrossing than just a description of the world she's living in. This baby represents a lot more than initially uh, seems to be the case. And as Yennefer buries the baby, you find yourself questioning whether all of this was worth it for Yennefer herself, because she sees how little value the people that are able to live the noble life and have these children actually uh, attribute to having the child. It's something where, you know, if you've got it, People tend to take it for granted, and if you don't, you tend to value it much, much more. I found it very touching, and like I said, I think it's probably one of my favorite sequences in the entire first season. And then we come to Triss, which is probably the most polarizing character and casting of the entire season up to this point. She doesn't actually have that much screen time when it comes down to it in season one, but that likely just means they're setting it up for more in season two. It's mostly born out of the frustration that a lot of fans had at the casting because many people felt as though this was more of a diversity casting as opposed to a casting that was honest to the description of Triss in the books and it definitely doesn't match the physical characteristics that people are familiar with if they're coming from the games where Triss is a bright redhead with bright eyes who's very young very She's she's attractive. <laughs> she's attractive. But Triss in the Witcher series on Netflix is someone of a different uh, racial group, I suppose. She has long curly brown hair. She has darker skin. She just doesn't match the description that people thought should be attributed to Triss. Now, in the books, I did look it up. I did investigate what the actual subject matter that inspired this series says about Triss. According to most translations that you can find in English, because of course I don't speak Polish, her hair is generally described as having a chestnut sheen, so predominantly brown with a slight red reflective tinge to it, uh, a flare of red, so to speak. So in The Witcher 3, when Triss has bright neon red hair, that is definitely more of a creative choice on the part of the developers of the games that's not really reflective of the books themselves. And this is why I brought up the question of why, because the choice to cast Triss in this particular way is a very active decision on the part of the showrunners, because most people would probably be expecting a look more similar to that of Triss in the games. And the casting of Yennefer is definitely closer to that of Yennefer in the games, but the casting of Triss is totally opposite from what people expected. Now, as far as the books are concerned, it's pretty close and I think it does a good enough job. I think it, it can be excused in light of the books and how Triss is written in those. But 
when it comes to the broader perception, because again, perception being more important than reality itself, people are always going to look at something like this, which is effectively a 180 on what people were expecting as a diversity hire, as more of a political statement than anything else. And it's unfortunate that something as simple as the casting of a character would be a political statement, but that's kind of the world we live in at this point. My stance is that I don't think she does a bad job. I think she's just fine. She delivers her line, she hits her mark, she does a good job, and I think she's done as much as she can with what she was given. Like I said earlier, she doesn't actually get a lot of screen time, so she doesn't really have the chance to shine in the same way that Yennefer or Geralt or Yaskir get to shine. But I'm hopeful, and I think that this is not something that could preclude a performance from going well. I think she definitely is talented, of course, to get on Netflix in any way, shape, or form is a reflection of your talent. So she's very good. I think she's going to do a great job and I'm going to maintain an optimistic outlook moving forward. Is it the casting choice I would have made? Probably not. I would have stuck closer to what people would broadly expect to see because if we're trying to please the fans, that's kind of my job as the showrunner. So I will do what I need to do to please the fans, whatever that expectation is. But that's just me. Let me know your thoughts on all of this down in the comment section below. I have a really smart and level-headed fan base, so I'm really interested to see what you guys think. But with all that said, let's get down to a more specific analysis of a given episode. I have restrained myself, especially after re-recording this critique multiple times, to only going through the first episode. If you are highly interested in the intricacies of each and every single episode, how they reflect on the books and everything like that, let me know. We can do sort of a literary analysis of the episodes from the book's perspective. I'd be happy to do that. I just need to know if you guys would like to see it. Again, comment section below. But we're going to start off going through the first episode bit by bit analyzing what it does well what it does poorly so the first episode opens up on a deer in a dark and gloomy poorly saturated forest when all of a sudden monsters erupt from the water Geralt comes jumping out and they are embroiled in a tense sword fight I, I don't know if this counts as a sword fight if only one person has a sword I guess it's a fight with a sword so it should be a sword fight it's like a sword and claw fight. Does that work? Sure. Now, people have given the sequence a lot of crap because they say the graphics aren't good. I actually don't really see it. The budget did run out definitely by the end of the season, but all told, this is pretty cool, especially the final kill shot where Geralt takes the sword finally from the water, and then he's able to shove it up into the monster's head as it's diving down to bite him. I think it works quite well. It looks realistic, especially kind of the limp noodle thing that the monster does. Like right here, boom, that's cool. That's cool. Can we all agree? That's cool. <laughs> I also love this because a Kikamora is not a very common thing in the games. So you don't tend to get to see a lot of them or hear a lot about them. So the fact that that's how they opened the season, I thought was pretty cool. Then we're shown the title screen with a unique logo. This is gonna change every single episode until the last one when they all come together to show more broadly what this season has been about. I hope this continues on throughout the rest of the series because I actually found it pretty cool to see how each and every episode had a different logo and intro sequence reflective of the content of that episode. I think it's cool. But following this battle, Geralt travels to a town known as Blaviken, and immediately upon entering a local tavern, he's greeted with what can merely be described as 
disdain. Most people don't like witchers. They look down upon them. They don't like them. And in many cases, they're not even welcome in public areas. This is something you'll see a lot of if you play the games or if you read the books. And it actually makes sense in the world of the witcher. There was a lot of tragedy, a lot of misery, a lot of pain, lots of monsters and terrible things going on all at once. Not to mention that they also refuse to work for free, at least they're supposed to refuse to work for free. So every time that they help anybody in need, they're asking for a certain dollar amount to compensate them for their trouble. And people look at that as profiting from their tragedy, their misery. And I think that's a fair problem to have. Of course, the witcher's side of the argument is that they are providing a service that nobody else is able to provide. They specialize in monster hunting. So they come in, they risk their lives to kill these monsters. They've paid some pretty drastic prices in order to be able to do this, whether that's body modifications, all of these mutations they go through to make sure that they're in peak physical form to fight these monsters, but it also makes it so they're very uh, non-emotional, they can't emote, they have trouble connecting with regular people, and they're basically permanently outcasts. It is a heavy cost and price to pay for what they're able to do, and people still respond pretty negatively whenever they show up. I actually find it to be a very interesting and almost fascinating dichotomy to put yourselves in, because they're providing a vital service and yet they're hated for it and i understand the perspective of both parties but i think that conflict is what makes every interaction between Geralt or any witcher for that matter and a regular citizen so fascinating because they're constantly butting heads each is frustrated with the other because neither wants to provide the other their services because they feel as though the other person is taking advantage of their own skill set it's just Conflict is what makes stories interesting. I mean, think about it. Any story that doesn't have conflict is totally boring. Luke and John walk to the store. They buy Pop-Tarts. They walk back. That's boring. But if I throw in that we happen to be jumped by a mob of Pop-Tart eating squirrels and we had to fight them off a swarm of hundreds, that all of a sudden gets interesting because there's conflict right there. I don't know what that analogy was, but I think it serves the point. But continuing on, there's actually a fair number of sequences in this first episode and in the first few episodes that seem to nod directly towards the games as well, which I like a lot, like the aforementioned bathtub scene later in the season, or even this shot right here. This shot, when I saw it and I was watching through the season for the first time, I actually had to pause it because it looked so similar to a sequence in the opening cinematic of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, this particular sequence. Now, maybe I'm going totally crazy, but they seem very, very similar to me, at least in look, style, and tone. Now, it could be that this is a total coincidence, and that's probably even the likelier case. But to me, that just proves the point that the tonality and the flavor of the world is so accurately done in both cases, in the case of The Witcher 3 and in the case of the Netflix series, that they look as though they were taken from the same clip or from the same trailer. They're exactly the same in terms of tone, look, style, color palette, everything. And it just goes to show that when you nail the presentation of the world, it all becomes cohesive and coherent. 
Now, the first episode mostly focuses on Geralt and Renfri, and Renfri is basically a disgraced princess who is rough and tumble and has a lot of problems of her own. She's actively being hunted by a wizard by the name of Stragobor. It's unfortunate because it's a really interesting plot line, especially in the source material, but the fact that it's only given one episode and the fact that Geralt is only in about half of the first episode, while the other half is focused on other characters being developed and introduced, it means that you only effectively have probably 10, 15 minutes of actual time to get to know Renfri as a character, know Geralt as a character, and get introduced to Stragobor and all these other political motivations and things before the story has to resolve itself to move on to the next episode. It feels as though they're not able to dig into each of these characters and their stories enough, and it feels unfortunately quite underdeveloped. This is why in season two, I really hope to see a lot more multi-episode plot lines that overarc throughout the entire season or even throughout the rest of the entire series. In season one, they're just trying to introduce everybody to the viewer, give them their background and get them to roughly the same place at the same time. That's what the final episode is entirely designed to do. So starting in season two, they're able to take all of those characters that have been established and are in the minds of the viewer and they're able to use those characters to tell a broader story. I hope that they're able to span those stories over the course of multiple episodes so that you have more time to get to know the motivations, the characters, everything that's going on, because there's a lot going on within each of these decisions that are being made. We'll see if it actually happens, though. It would definitely be more of a lean into the Game of Thrones style of things, where they spend an entire season dealing with effectively one choice that a couple characters have to make. But I think that that patience with storytelling really pays off in the end because everybody knows and has thought through the question and the answer themselves so they are very invested in their decision but at this point we're effectively five minutes into the episode and where do we stand well already we've seen a monster fight we've seen a very dark and moody town we've seen characters that seem to have secrets that they're unwilling to share with others there's a lot of motivations that are conflicting between multiple characters and there's also been some moments of levity and jokes like this one that i thought was really really funny want some breakfast i'm full Venison. Today isn't your day, is it? Now, after these few jokes in the opening sequence, there really isn't much levity for the rest of the episode. Really, the season doesn't have much... Uh, light many moments of levity and joy until Yaskir gets introduced and starts traveling with Geralt. He provides most of the comedic relief and it relieves a lot of the tension because again, like we learned with Game of Thrones, when everything is a drag and when everything is terrible and miserable, it can get exhausting for the viewer. So to have some funny characters or some characters that make you even just chuckle or exhale out of your nose, it's good and i think it's something that they should lean into in season two not make everything a farce but to lean into yes gear lightening the tone bringing back some laughs bringing the viewer back from this sort of depressed state keep it light keep it flashy keep it gay keep it gay keep it gay so after this dragobor lures Geralt into his man cave which is filled with a lot of uh tickle biddies basically stragobor wants to hire Geralt to kill renfrey 
Geralt refuses, and that's kind of that. We also get our first look at Ciri directly after this, and I was blown away at how fantastically well they cast Ciri. She actually matches my mental description of Ciri almost exactly as she's described in the books. I think that this is fantastically well done. My only thing is that many characters in the series wear contacts in their eyes to give them particular looks like Geralt has a, a, the cat eyes depending on the situation or sometimes they get the all black eyes or they light up. Ciri has these contacts in as well and sometimes they're better than at others. There are some sequences where her eyes look like they are like painted on in MS paint and they aren't particularly well done. Other moments they're very delicate and carefully crafted. So I would hope to just see better implementation of these contacts in season two. This feast sequence is also very interesting because it sets the stage for what's going to be coming in the later episodes where the entire country is on the verge of war. There's a lot of pressure, especially with Nilfgaard pressing down. So to see these royals actively worry and stress about the situation they're finding themselves within and the impact it's going to have on their citizens, on their country, on their reign, on their children, it's very, very well done. And you can see both the arrogance and the confidence, but also the fear at play all at the same time. It's something that really deserves a lot of praise because I think it's partially how well it's written, but it's also definitely attributable to the fantastic acting that's presented by the main cast here. After this, Geralt and Renfrey have another rendezvous. They discuss more and more, but Geralt isn't having any of this. And he basically says at the end of the day, Renfrey, you need to leave or you're going to die. That's pretty much it. You're not welcome here. You need to go. And I actually found this a really fascinating way to start the season because it frames Geralt as somebody who wants to avoid conflict if he can, much preferring everybody just disperses, get rid of the threat, disperse all stresses, and we'll just move on. If we can avoid fighting, we will avoid fighting. If I can avoid killing anybody, I will avoid killing anybody. But as we'll see throughout the season, and as I'm sure we're going to see throughout the series, every time Geralt tries to take this middle ground stance, people turn on him, people try to push him, they try to get around it, and they end up dying as a result, because Lord knows Geralt isn't going to be the one that does. And it's also a little heartbreaking for Geralt because he really doesn't want to bring death and destruction to people or to the places that he travels to. He just wants to get in, get money to survive, and then leave. He is a nomad. He doesn't want to stick around. He doesn't want to be embroiled in any of that drama. But he always finds himself getting embroiled in that drama, causing more stress, even more death, even if he does resolve the problem that was the heart of the issue. The world of The Witcher is one of the darkest and even dystopian world that you'll see in fantasy. It is unforgiving and it is miserable. And just to survive it requires many acts where you're choosing between the lesser of two very stark evils. And in this case, it's directly comparable to that. You have Renfri and you have Stragobor, both people you don't really want to help. One's a bandit, one's a weird magician wizard dude that has a bunch of women slaves that are apparitions in his guard. Like the whole thing is weird. 
Geralt doesn't want to mess with it, but he kind of has to choose a side. And when he tries to stay completely out of it and give an ultimatum where Renfrey just leaves and the problem goes away, she refuses that ultimatum and forces Geralt's hand. Geralt then has a dream wherein he realizes that Renfrey is not going to go away and the only way to stop this will be to force her out or to kill her. So he goes to meet with her and unlike the books, he immediately encounters a large gang of her men and he decides to take them on in what can only be described as a badass sequence. There's actually a bunch of videos on the internet describing how they filmed this sequence, how they rehearsed it, how the CGI worked to make it all work together, how they used cut off swords that were only half length and they put in the rest of the length of the sword in post so that they wouldn't be flinging around with actual swords. It's fascinating, it's super cool, and Henry Cavill actually offers live commentary on it. I recommend you look it up if you're interested. It's gory and it is a single cut camera, so it just plows right on through through what is a very intense sequence. It's done very, very well. The choreography is exactly like that, as you would expect from Geralt, a witcher. It's very well done, and I can't wait to see more sequences like this. Then Renfrey shows up, decides she wants to fight Geralt for more reasons. They fight, and as you would expect, she loses. And even the particular way in which she dies is reflective of the broader theme of this episode, which is that Geralt doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to be embroiled in this misery, pain, and death. So in this case, she technically sort of stabs herself. I don't think that would hold up in a court of law, don't get me wrong, but I think in effect, it serves the purpose of showing that Geralt didn't want to do this. His sword is clean of her blood, even though it's definitely not, but in effect, he didn't want to do it. She kind of forced his hand. She brought this on herself. After she's dead, Stragobor comes out, as do most of the townspeople, and they quickly turn on Geralt. He's forced to leave, and he is quite frustrated by this. Again, he doesn't get any pleasure out of it. Meanwhile, Sintra is sacked by Nilfgaard in a very impressive display of wasteful arrows. This means that Ciri must flee the castle as they keep speaking of her mysterious power, how she shouldn't be uh, given over, that she must be protected at all costs. If you don't know anything about the Witcher, this just seems strange and mysterious. Ooh, I wonder what her power is. We see a couple of hints of it here and there, but we don't see much. The most clear example of Ciri's power does come just a few minutes after this, though. While Ciri's escaping, a soldier from the Nilfgaardian army that's been following her around finds her, throws her on the horse, then she decides when she sees that the city's being sacked to scream, as most people probably would, at which point this, the horse gets scared, knocks everybody off. It seems like she either has a particularly loud scream or there's something else going on. Siri runs away a little bit, turns back around, and continues screaming, at which point the sound amplifies. It gets more and more powerful to the point where it actually starts to affect the ground underneath their feet which could be described as a superpower, I suppose. <laughs> and what I love about this is that both characters are totally stunned by it. Siri is shocked that she was able to do this. The guard is shocked that he just witnessed what he witnessed and they both know, okay, something strange is going on here. 
Let's just appreciate that. And then we just see Siri running off into the woods, which is where we leave the episode and we continue on to episode two. We don't know where Siri's headed. We don't know where Geralt's headed. We don't know what the deal is with any of the other characters. Everything's in limbo. And I think this first episode does a pretty good job of establishing the world that this series is going to take place within. It's dark, it's gritty, it's moody. You're often choosing between the lesser of two evils there's very little joy in here. It's about to become a war-stricken land. This isn't a great time for anybody involved. There's a lot of conflict, and as I said earlier, conflict is the heart of a good story. But what definitely is not clear is that these are completely different timelines currently. The Geralt of Rivia that you're seeing in this episode is actually many years before the timeline that Siri is within at this particular moment. So while that's not clear at all, I don't think it matters that much because we're setting up the characters separately only to join them together later. But they do lay a couple of seeds in there that these two characters are going to meet. Specifically, as Renfri dies, she actually explains how Geralt is going to meet a girl in the woods that will be inextricably tied to his destiny. We don't know much about this girl. If you have no knowledge of the series at all, you aren't going to know who she's referring to. But the fact that the last shot of the episode is of Siri running into a forest, I think that probably hints pretty good that that's the girl to which she's referring. And as the season goes on, we get to meet all sorts of different characters. Like I explained, we get to meet Yennefer, who takes sort of center stage for the next few episodes. And then we go back, we meet Geralt, and Geralt meets Yaskir, and they interact with each other a lot until eventually the characters slowly start to get introduced to each other, Yennefer with Geralt, and then all those three between Geralt, Yennefer, and Yaskir travel together, and they're engaged in multiple transactions together until eventually we get to the last episode when all of the characters meet up at the same timeline in the same places and things get rolling. Really, I think the best way to describe season one of The Witcher is as a foundation for what's coming up. Pretty much everything that they chose to do in this first season was to provide an entertaining way of introducing characters and getting them to the same place at the same time. That's pretty much all they were doing throughout the course of the first eight episodes or so. In season two, chances are we're going to have all of the characters in the same places at the same times still, and they're going to be able to start engaging with each other to solve certain problems that approach. I won't spoil anything in case you're not familiar with it, but I think it's a pretty good sign of things to come. And I can't explain clearly enough the potential that has been laid out here in season one. If Netflix is able to continue on the same trajectory that they took with season one into season two, three, four, five, whatever they end up having, The Witcher could honestly end up being one of the best series that Netflix has ever produced in their first party studios. It could end up being as big as something like Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones. That void is currently completely empty and it's just waiting for some big series to come in and fill that void. I think The Witcher has the potential to fill it. I think the story that the books originally told is good enough to fill that void satisfactorily. All they need to do is deliver it properly to the fans. Furthermore, given the fact that CD Projekt Red has all but confirmed the fact that they are going to be working on another Witcher game after they finish with Cyberpunk 2077, I think it is very good evidence that we could have a season two or three of The Witcher line up perfectly with the release of another Witcher game, which would blow my mind and 
I'm, I can't even express how happy I would be. I can't wait for season two. Hopefully you can't either. I think we are in store for a real treat. But I want to hear all of your thoughts on all of this stuff we've discussed in the comment section below. Critiques on Netflix series and TV stuff, really anything other than a game, is something I'm pretty new to. So if you have any advice, things you think I could do better in next episodes or series or continuations of this, let me know. I'm always game for improving my craft. But thank you for watching, honestly and truly. Again, I hate to be the e-begging type, but these videos take a ton of time and effort to work through and produce, especially when the copyright system is being an absolute nightmare and this video likely won't be monetized at all. So if you could find it in your heart, even just to throw a single dollar my way for this month, that would mean the world to me and it would mean that I could continue working on these big videos for you. But with all that said, thank you for watching. I love you all, and I'll see you in the next video. Peace out.